I think that actually as a profession, by trying passionately to fight for the welfare rights of these dogs and to improve things for them, we actually pushed away the very people who were asking us for help. And we pushed them further into forums and bad advice that isn't regulated in exactly the place that we never wanted them to receive the advice. And then when that happens and they turn away from us, we say, well, they didn't come to us. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another VN Happy Hour. I'm VN Times Editor Rachel Bozzle. And I'm Vector Times Editor James Westgate. Tonight, we're going to be delving into the very important topic of brachycephalic breed health, the care of these breeds in practice, and how, as vet nurses, you can educate and support owners. We've got Happy Hour alumni Lacey Pitcher back with us tonight. Hi, Lacey. Evening. <laughs> Lacey's passionate about brachy breed health and welfare and believes in building bigger tables rather than bigger walls, and that facilitating conversations may have the greatest impact to help improve things for these breeds. Yes, and straight after that, Lacey will be joined by another previous Happy Hour guest, Jane Davidson, and we also have Happy Hour newbie, Polly May News, joining us. Hi, um, Hi, Polly. Um, Jane needs little introduction. You all know Jane. For those who don't, she's London and Kent-based vet nurse who writes to educate and support vets, vet nurses and pet owners. She's the most popular blogger, stroke vlogger in her industry and runs the award-winning online community, hashtag PlanetRVN. As an owner of Pekingese, Jane has experienced firsthand the intense physical and emotional strain of caring for brachycephalic breeds. And Polly is a consultant at Animal Trust. She is a brachycephalic breed advocate and believes that education by nurse clinics and having a positive conversation is the best way to work together to bring healthy brachycephalic breeds back. She also runs the Bracky Nurse page on Instagram. We've got lots to cover so should we dive right in James? Yeah we will so um, hi again Lacey how are you doing? Good, thank you. Thank you very much for having me back. You're, you're more than welcome. You're more than welcome. And we've had tons of questions that uh, sent in by our delegates, uh, as we always do every month. The challenge for us this month, wasn't it, Rachel, was uh, was getting those now down to about 10. Otherwise, we'll overrun. Oh, so uh, with that in mind, I'm going to come straight in um, with our first question, which is it fair to stigmatise brachycephalic dogs? I think rather than rather than ignore the problem, the brachycephalic crisis, because it is a crisis, we have it's a, a culmination of several, several different problems um, is, is bad. There's, there's no two ways about it. Um, I am a brachycephalic advocate and I advocate for the multiple breeds. Um, and I'm very passionate about the difference between bulldogs and brachycephalics, not just mm-hmm. bulldogs. You mean brachycephalic? Brachycephalic. Um, but I just think that the crisis we are potentially as a profession making worse by pushing away the patients with the biggest welfare needs and kind of, as I say, building bigger walls and stopping the conversation before it had a chance to get started. Um, so in regards to the, the problems, they are multifaceted which is why i'm so excited for this conversation this evening mm-hmm. um it's it's a crisis and i'm very very aware of it um and sometimes being an advocate and outwardly putting your head above the parapet as all the panel this evening have and saying actually we need to do more for brachycephalic breeds can sometimes bring us under 
quite a lot of, I think controversy may be the right word sometimes, because actually we're so passionate about advocating for them. That can be seen as, I believe that brachycephalics are fabulous and the only way forward, actually, it's I understand that we have multiple problems and I want to do something constructive, not just say brachycephalics are bad. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's an extremely nuanced subject. And uh, you mentioned some of the publicity, and that leads us nicely into our next question, which is much of the publicity surrounding these breeds is negative. Do you think this helps the situation? I don't. Um, I think we need to, to point out the huge medical and behavioural implications in several of these breeds and species um obviously we quite often will will refer mainly to dogs but it is multiple species um certainly i've been approached for my my own dog to be used in um, media campaigns and she is a better example of a french bulldog but i also appreciate that i appreciate she's a better example but to other people, she's a French bulldog, and I don't want people to just go out and buy a French bulldog because she's a lovely example without understanding the why. Um, I think we need to be really, really careful about using them in the media because unless we're explaining the why, just using them in the media could be actually quite dangerous for them and for the future of, of their breeds. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we obviously had, we also had that quandary with advertising this event. It is, mm. it's, it's a very difficult um, line to walk. But um, next question is, do you think too much concentration uh, is on the negative side? I mean, specifically within the profession, do we think the profession has got that balance right? I personally don't. I think that uh, partic- the problem has been there for a long time. And a few years ago, as a profession, it's not that the problem wasn't there, but it's getting worse. And it's getting worse for multiple reasons. The popularities of the breeds that we see most commonly, how pugs, French bulldogs, had a huge rise in the numbers that were being registered every year. And they become very, very popular very quickly. And we forget that one of the reasons they become popular are their personalities. And yes, I'm biased because she's mine, but the brachycephalics that I've owned and have been part of my family have incredible personalities and that's infectious and it does make you smile and she's quirky and sassy and I love it. But as a profession, if someone said to me, for example, if, if you were going to, to school and someone said, your child, ugly, would you have any respect for them or would you in an instant have lost all respect and not want to listen to anything they say? Mm-hmm. So for me, I think that actually as a profession, by trying passionately to fight for the welfare rights of these dogs and to improve things for them, we actually pushed away the very people who were asking us for help and we pushed them further into forums and bad advice that isn't regulated in exactly the place that we never wanted them to receive the advice. And then when that happens and they turn away from us, we say, well, they didn't come to us. We could have told them that would happen. We could have said you shouldn't have bred from that dog. We could have said that it's getting worse. And actually we shut the conversation down. It was actually us. Someone came to us and asked for help and didn't know what they needed. We're educated to try and help the problem and 
we actually stopped facilitating it. So for me, I feel that maybe with good intention, we went the wrong way. Yeah. I mean, I think with that answer, you've kind of answered the next question, which was what are some of the risks of making owners of brachycephalic breeds feel alienated in general? And that is pushing them off into spaces where perhaps they're not going to get the right advice and guidance. Yeah. And it's then very easy to say, oh, actually, she's lovely. Why don't you have a litter? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, if you'd have come to a veterinary professional, we could have said, well, let's let's look at all of the potential reasons to have a litter. I personally advocate in whatever breed, whatever species, I really believe that, that home-reared litters um, create better behavioural balance and the way that they're socialised as little ones um, has a massive impact on the rest of, of their life, particularly dogs. Um, and had someone come to me, I could have explained that actually the risks associated with whelping. Um, Actually, well, in terms of confirmation, her nose is actually very, very short and we we potentially risk exacerbating those problems. So actually, I would recommend that we don't breed from her, um, but for these reasons, so that people can make an informed decision rather than me just preach that that's bad. I want people to have trust in what I say as a professional and come back to me because they want to not because they feel they didn't have a choice in a crisis when they turn up at my out of hours clinic with a whelping bitch out of their depth and then saying but the person gave me advice and said this would be okay I now don't know what to do and then I'm asking them to trust me when actually as a profession they've always felt that they came against brick walls every time they've asked for advice so for me yeah I think I think we've got a long way to go and I think we just maybe need to rewire and reframe our approach because the current one is not working. Um, I mean, this is going to be, I think, a difficult question for you to answer. Um, But should there be more emphasis placed on the positive aspects of owning a bracky dog? I think that a balanced viewpoint is needed and there are positive aspects. But I think in doing so, maybe we need to look at um when we look at positive aspects look at them on a on a case by case basis so for example i'll I'll use dumpling because she lives with me um she is a very small french bulldog and we do get approached a lot because she's small and one of the first things i i explain is actually she's really fit she does very very well because she's kept in a in a good weight um but actually I wouldn't recommend seeking out a very small French bulldog because of this. So we go positives and negatives together. Just all positive or all negative in anything in life is not realistic. There's always going to be pros and cons to everything. And I think giving the two together and a balanced opinion is a more constructive way to help members of the public, rescues, charities, other professionals. All positive just sounds like we're ignoring the problem. And there is a giant problem. So I want to face it. But I think it's important that we actually give credit to some of the breeders out there who are trying to do better. Um, This problem is going to take generations to fix, if at all possible. And if we don't 
champion the positives and those doing better, then we're not pushing for change either. So for me, I think the positives are really important because when we champion the positives, at least it's a conversation. At least it's not someone saying you're doing everything wrong. Because why would anyone then want to work with us? Why would a breeder trying to seek to improve things want to work with us? This has to be a collaboration. Otherwise, it's not going to work. That's a great answer to show you how complicated that communication can be um, in this particular space. I'm going to jump a question and move Mm -hmm. into one I think fits nicely to your previous answer. But what advice would you give to an owner intent on becoming a breeder of bracky dogs? I would say, firstly, why? What is your motivation for wanting to breed? When we know someone's motivation, we can work with them. If the motivation is, I adore this breed, maybe you had them when you were little. Maybe you've had King Charles Cavaliers when you were little and you grew up and they were the most beautiful temperament. And over the years, the last 10, 20 years, you have sat back and watched as the breed you adored that you have fond childhood memories of has been destroyed. Well, their faces are getting shorter, their medical problems are mounting and the breed that you love no longer looked like they did when you remember them. If that is someone's reason, that is a good intention. And then perhaps by helping shape what that looks like, we can do more to have a positive impact. So we can help someone with all the right and correct health testing preemptively. We can ensure that the 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 bitch, for example, has a behavioural assessment. And then when all of that information is gathered together as a team, we can work with that, that pet carer to decide whether that bitch is going to be suitable and if it's in her interests. Um, having a litter is a really big thing, but if we just say that's a bad idea, we didn't help anybody. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a conversation. And then that person who came with good intention asking for help will go and ask someone else who may not give a balanced view, who may not be constructive, And actually, someone with good intentions might be lost when actually they're exactly what we need to improve things. They are the person we need to make the difference. Right. We're going to be running out of time. I've got three questions left, so we're going to try and squeeze these in. Um, So um, I want to have a frank and open chat with potential owners of a bracky breed about what they might face in the future. Uh, Where should I start? Come with an open mind um, to have the conversation. If you're if you're passionately just anti-Bracky, then we need to learn as well. Um, because there are good examples and bad examples in every breed. And as many of us know, yeah, when I was little, my nan had German Shepherds, and now it breaks my heart to see sloping backs and really really bad problems and they do have their own issues absolutely and that doesn't mean that that's any less important but we can do so much to shape the future of the dogs we see by having the conversations we stand to make a massive massive welfare increase we can we can really shape how these dogs do and 
our code of conduct is surrounding improving welfare and nurses are so well placed for these conversations because quite often people will come not feeling anxious not feeling judged and actually we have done a really really good job as a nurse if someone can come into our consult room and openly say i don't know what i'm doing but i want to do the best i can that's a really good starting point and as nurses if that's something you're passionate about and you want to improve welfare just saying no doesn't make change saying how can i help have you thought about this that's a conversation that's going to be much more helpful and together that could shape a much better future and certainly in our careers we could see things improve it's going to take time but we could see improvements in 30 seconds for this one (laughs) what are the best resources out there for me as a vn to advise owners of a bracky to look at the cambridge university um projects are phenomenal they make really good resources for pet carers to understand the differences and the images are brilliant they've got some fab resources and that would be my first place to try um it's also very helpful to have someone that's not your practice branded stuff because as an impartial regulated provider that then builds trust between yourself and the the person that's come to you for help it's not your practice's information this is regulated information from a third party mm-hmm. Excellent. I'm sure if anyone DMs you, Lacey, you'll happily send them any links to any any of those. Oh, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think something's just gone on there as well. Thanks for that, Katie. But um, final question, it kind of links back to, to, to the, uh, the, the question before um, about the conversation and how it's going to be a long journey, um, and but we need to begin the conversation. We can affect change. Um, and I think that ties in nicely with this question is, do you think we'll still be having the same debates around bachycephalic dogs in 20 years time? Or do you think some of the negative publicity around these breeds will ultimately lead to their disappearance? I think we'll still have this conversation in 20 years time. And the reason I think we will is because we should still be improving. If we stop having the conversations, then what are we doing to push further? because there's always room for more improvement and there's always room to work harder to serve ourselves and the patients and pet carers that our code of conduct surrounds. So we need to keep having these conversations. And yes, in 20 years, we still will. I'm not oblivious or under any illusion that this is not going to be hard. I just think so far this is not working and we need a different approach. Fantastic. Well, that's all we've got time for in this slot. That was absolutely brilliant, Lacey. Pitch perfect, if you excuse the pun. Um, <laughs> but uh, brilliant. Well, you'll, you'll be joining us uh, for our panel chat in a second uh, with Jane and Polly. We're all looking forward to that. Again, we've had tons of questions come in for that. Are you ready, panel? Right, I'm going to come to you first, Jane. Would you recommend referral for BOAS surgery? It depends on the clinic that people are in. I'm aware that some first opinion vets are doing a lot of this. What I would say is probably more important is potentially get a second opinion because what else could you do surgery-wise at the same time? Um, Because it's not only BOAS, but um, particularly Pekingese, is there a nose roll that's rubbing on the eyes that could also happen around the same time? Are we going to neuter? Is there anything else that we want to do under anaesthetic? So I think... 
referral may not, not necessarily be essential, but I definitely think a second opinion, potentially at a referral clinic to see if when you're doing BOAS, is there anything else also that you're going to do? And just consider, obviously, the financial implications and the travel implications. Um, but I think if people are asking about BOAS and they only want to do referral, rather let them go and do referral than lose them not doing it at all. Okay. Great answer. This one's for you, Polly. First of all, welcome to Happy Hour. Hello. A debutant. Uh, another BOAS question as well. Um, some practices offer BOAS surgery during castrations, etc. Should we do that? Is it normalising the issue? I think if you're in a practice that has the ability to offer both, then I don't see why you wouldn't do both at the same time, obviously just to reduce the risk of having a second anaesthetic at a later date as well. Um, and also, if you're having to do BOAS surgery on a patient, they're not a candidate for breeding. So you don't want to then do the BOAS surgery and the client then breed the dog a couple, you know, a couple of years down the line, a couple of months down the line. Um, the Obviously, the issue is some of the, well, anyone went to the BOAS research group, they told me that not all dogs that have the BOAS, that's, they need more. They need the turbinates lasering in their nose. And I'm pretty sure there's only two clinics in the UK that offer that, which is Glasgow and Cambridge. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, whilst you might be able to do BOAS in-house, would it be better not to refer the dog to a referral centre where they can have a CT scan and tackle the problem in one go rather than have repeated surgeries? Um, so I think it just depends on where you are and where you can get to and the client, obviously, what they can afford as well, if the dog's insured or not. Great. So it all depends on circumstances. Great answer. Um, over to you, Rachel. Okay. Right, Lacey, this one's for you. Do you think BOAS should be performed in non-referral veterinary practices? Um, I, as always, be controversial. Um, so as a disclaimer, I work in multiple multidisciplinary referral clinics around the country. So for my own dog, I would always choose to do the best that I can. Now, the best that I can for my dogs is referral because they are well-traveled. They don't get stressed traveling. I'm not going to worry about a dog that cannot breathe traveling to a referral center, stressed and getting there far more compromised than we would have been if we went local. And I have access to those people. I have thought about it ahead of time I'm well researched and my dogs are insured so financially I am able to do that as well the controversial bit if a charity practice is willing and it is in their scope of care to do BOAS surgery um, bearing in mind let's just remember that BOAS surgery is a collection of problems not just one, as Polly's rightly said, it's not just the palate, it is a collection of issues, whether that's just nares, just palate, saccules, and so on. Do I feel that they should have access to charity treatment? If they can have some of the aspects of their BOAS managed at a charity hospital willing and wanting to do surgery to have a massive impact on their welfare and make their life less horrendous, I absolutely think we should, because those dogs will be struggling their entire life otherwise. And while that is charity funds, yes, why should that dog continue to struggle just to exist when we could do something about it? If neutering is made a a must, 
for that surgery to take place. And I know that isn't something that everyone agrees with. I understand why a charity only has so much money to go around, but that dog, that patient, that being is suffering at that point. And I feel that that suffering should be made less. So for me, it depends on the circumstances. I would choose referral for mine, but that's because I have done a lot of research and I have the forethought of working in a profession that deals with these patients. Thank you, Lacey. The uh, $6 million question for you, Jane, uh, (laughs) is do you agree with the breeding of brachycephalic animals? Let's not waste time, no. No. Okay. Do you want to uh, expand on that for a few (laughs) seconds? rescues are full of them like mm-hmm. do you know what i mean like there just yeah. is absolutely no there is no need for breeding of any dog in this country unless you're talking about a guide dog full stop i absolutely like heard some overheard someone the other day going i'm getting a letter of a letter walked behind an 18 month old golden retriever and could see its hips flapping mm-hmm. in the breeze mm-hmm. you know like people don't can't take responsibility for their own pet they don't know enough about it. It's much more complex to get a good, healthy dog than people realise. And just know, I've, I've had three Persians and three Pekingese. Every single one of those was not only just a rescue, but actually abandoned, like dumped, like rubbish. And although some of them came from clinics I worked in, um, several half of them came through legitimate rehoming centres, um, you know, like Ebony was from Dogs Trust, etc., so it's like, it's not that you can't get these dogs. They're there. Like, I know that the local dogs trust me. They deal with um, the fake passport puppies at Dover. They are full, and I will say a full of exactly the designer breeds that everyone wants. They are full of French bulldogs. Saw one yesterday with a cherry eye, beautiful. Um, which people then went, oh, it's the breed, in it? And they're like, well, it's not breed standard. They're more susceptible to it. It's different. So it's just... They're out there, absolutely no. And you're getting a lot of love on the chat there. For <laughs> that answer, Jane. But we move Thank, on. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> That's you, yeah, a lot of agreement with you there, Jane. Um, right, Polly, do you have uh, tips or advice as I'm planning to start offering, offering brachycephalic clinics in my practice? I would say definitely take it back to basics. Um, a lot of the clients that I spoke to were completely unaware of the fact that something that they, you know, being able to only walk a short distance, if that's what their dog can do, they think that's normal for the breed. I think the main thing is to dispel a lot of the common breed myths. And also, for example, like bulldogs being overweight, you know, French being overweight, they think it's normal for them to be overweight because they're a bulldog. That's not true, obviously. So I think the best thing to do is to take it back to basics and just treat them as if that you know well they don't really know much about the breed not many clients do research the breed before they buy them and like lady said the resources from the boas group you've got a nares scoring chart where you i often say to the client where do you think your dog is on this list compared to the others they always score them higher than what they are so i think the best thing is to just to take it back to the basics and completely dispel any myths that they've got and they believe about their breed and um, st- staying on the subject of clinics, Lacey, um, does offering brachycephalic clinics, in your opinion, send out the wrong message and attract the wrong kind of client? We do weight clinics for overweight pets. Why not do brachycephalic clinics for other pets struggling with a different problem? We do diabetic clinics. It's still a medical crisis. 
Um, and that is how we need to treat things. So I 100% think we need to do preemptive clinics. Um, and I think we need to do and advertise fully across the profession pre-purchase puppy appointments because most people don't realise that they could come to a nurse and ask for free and we would happily help and guide them to find whatever breed it is that they want to find a healthier example of that. And brachycephalics is such a welfare crisis that I think they need their own. I think we need to actually look at them. And then as, as Polly said, explain, well, actually, it's not that they're low activity. It might be that you you actually have a dog that really does need high activity and physically can't do that. That doesn't mean their brain is not, not needing more so i think yes we need to do them in the same way as we need to for other crises such as diabetes and and weight clinics we are well placed as nurses to gain that trust to share our knowledge and to improve things great answer over to you rachel yeah i'm coming over to you jane um should more practices be offering fertility services for brachycephalic breeds and and that's to stop these services going underground yeah and this is there's loads of chat on this and it's a really kind of complicated area because the facility the fertility services that we would offer as a veterinary clinic have a have a clinical basis so yes i'm aware that God, i think i'm going to vomit slightly saying this i'm aware that some clinics do artificial insemination um you know whatever you think on that and they'll do pregnancy health checks but the things that a lot of the fertility clinics are selling are like things that you don't actually need. So do you really need an ultrasound to know roughly how many puppies are coming? You actually, you actually don't, um, you know, that kind of thing is, it's a difficult one. And then that's the reason why these clinics then are difficult to regulate because they're not, pregnancy isn't a disease. So you're not diagnosing, you're either saying there's puppies there or there's not. Um, they're not even in that way that accurate. I think we all know that, that, you know, there might be puppies, I don't know where they go and hide, but they go and hide somewhere else. And so it's, it's a difficult one to regulate because they're not doing a, a diagnosis and they're not necessarily doing uh, a skill that's uh, a regulated skill the artificial insemination again it's not a regulated skill but it's the underground aspect and it's the creating a community aspect that are really worrying and they're also feeding a desire you know people do you know as Lacey said people do breed these dogs for a number of different reasons and although some of them are financial that is still an emotional reason to breed an animal it's often why they want to know how many puppies there are and because we get ultrasounded as humans then they you know anthropomorphization god i did that well um <laughs> for this time at night of our animals is in there as in well if i get an ultrasound to see if my babies are healthy i would like the same for my dog and they don't realize that really they're not it's not a health check it's a you've i can see 10 heads or something so it's a really difficult one because i think the concern is not necessarily that these animals are getting substandard care it's that they're forming a community that are seeking veterinary advice or borderline around veterinary health advice elsewhere and also i mean we don't have enough it's a difficult thing we don't have enough staff to do the actual things that we need to do and so therefore if you started offering you know welfare ultrasounds pregnancy where do we 
you know, where do we get these extra staff from? So it's, I mean, it's a complete nightmare because in an ideal world, we would offer all these things because they keep our clients happy. But actually, is there a clinical need to ultrasound a dog during pregnancy if it's well? No, there's not. Um, artificial insemination, are there health problems associated with animals having that at a non-vet? I'm not aware of some. I think that, yeah, somebody's saying 90% of breeders do it for financial gain. Oh God, absolutely. They say that they love the dog, but ultimately the pound signs are in their eyes. And that's why also these clinics are offering these services cheap. Someone on my Facebook marketplace here, and I, God, I hate this woman, comes up. Uh, I'm doing a scanning certificate and I want dogs to scan. It's only 20 quid. And it's like, what are we paying 20 quid for? <laughs> because you're, you're training. So you might not even be scanning the right bit. But it just, it's that, it's a difficult one. It's difficult to regulate because it's out with veterinary control. Are there health problems associated? I don't think so. But are it of any benefit to the animal? No, but people are tapping into a very emotional aspect of breeding dogs. And they're just taking that step away from, you know, because the breeder will probably have some tonic that they can sell. They'll probably know someone, you know, you see people talking about, you know, they'll probably know someone that can help them at the birth and all these kind of things. And it's, it's humanizing a process which, you know, shouldn't need to be humanized. It's a great Thank answer. You, Jane. Brilliant stuff. And this one's for you, Polly. Um, how would you begin a conversation with a breeder that you were concerned was breeding too many litters from their brachy dog? Uh, I don't think this is generalized to brachies. I think it's all breeders. Mm-hmm. Um, breeding in the UK is really not regulated at all obviously there you know you can be a licensed breeder but i mean there's limits to that so most breeders aren't going to want to license themselves because i think they're only allowed to have three breeding bitches and then they start having to pay tax on the on the litters after that i think um i think it's a difficult conversation to have because ultimately if they don't like if you approach the client and they don't like what you say they're just going to go and find a different practice they they if they're breeding you know, repeatedly, they're not the kind of client that is going to take any notice of what you say. So unfortunately, I think that is a losing battle, but it's just to keep approaching them with the welfare, um, you know, implications of repeatedly breeding a dog if they're having repeated C-sections. Um, I do think it's just a difficult conversation to have, really, because like I say, if, they're, if they are repeatedly breeding, they're not the type of clients that are going to listen to you anyway. Yeah, lots of difficult conversations i think around this subject um and is over to you rachel yeah it's another one for you jane in your opinion what are the most pressing health issues of surrounding brachycephalic breeds and how can they be resolved okay so i know you're gonna think i'm mad this was holly uh this was my second pekinese i think you can see her there in her tiara um so holly's list of surgery uh, she had her nose roll removed something we've not kind of talked on tonight but when you see a brachy you will start once you start noticing nose rolls you'll never stop so they first the hair up into the eyes and that's where they get scarring on their eyes and, and get eye problems so she had her nose roll removed uh, she had two dentals um, luckily she didn't have to lose an eye but ebony my later pekinese who was also black uh, ended up with both eyes being removed because of brachy problems um Joint problems, skin problems, breathing problems, claws. And that's before we get on to potentially any age-related issues. Breathing clearly, you know, (laughs) we'd like them to have a normal oxygenation level is massive. But I think just overall generalised pain is something that we maybe don't look at. And I 
whenever I handle a brachycephalic, I just assume they're in pain at some point, um, particularly the small dogs, because if you ever see an x-ray, their joints just don't articulate normally. And certainly with my own dogs, they had severe arthritic changes at a very, very early age. So therefore, when you're doing the nail clip, they're probably screaming because they're divas. I always think my peaks lived off 50% one emotion and just 50% diva. I've got to make a disaster out of this. But they're sore. They're sore all the time. And they don't wait very evenly on their claws. They don't walk enough to wear their claws down. Their claws kind of, you know, split to the side and they've got ridiculous feet. So I think just assume that that dog is in pain. Doesn't matter if it's presented for pain or not. Assume it's in pain, treat it and handle it as such, because you will usually get a much better response from that. And the same goes for, I know we've talked a lot, obviously, about dogs tonight. Um, I had Persians, they suffer exactly the same. Uh, my second Persian, when she was x-rayed for something else, they said, oh, look at the massive lung field changes. And that's because of her brachycephalia. And that's something that isn't really being, you know, you can't really do a BOAS if you've got a one millimeter nose. So because we don't talk about BOAS with uh, brachy cats, because physically you would be taking away their whole head, um, you know, it's still there. They still suffer with joint problems, although they're, you know, their overall sort of makeup it is is not as extreme um and the same for you know bracky guinea pigs and bracky rabbits um breathing first but just assume that there is some sort of pain and discomfort going on from itchy skin sore joints sore eyes sore ears um <laughs> and generally not being able to you know breathe properly so yeah you know absolutely um you know these, these are all there and that's where it's difficult to have that discussion with an owner that you kind of need to pick the one that's obvious for their pet and build their confidence that you can treat that and keep them comfortable and then kind of drip feed other stuff. I think agreeing with Lacey's um, comment about, you know, charities doing BOAS. I worked in a charity. We, we did quite a number of BOAS and I'm, I imagine that's only gone up. If the option is that the pet gets zero treatment, some treatment is better than noth nothing. And it's exactly the same that, you know, you might walk in and look at a bracky and go, that is eyes, knees, hips, skin. But, you know, there's 10 problems that I would like to resolve now as a veterinary professional. Actually, this client's quite new to us. I need to focus on what they see as the main problem, build trust, and at subsequent appointments can bring in, oh, do you know, do you know what? His hair's missing on, on the top of these two claws. Does he scuff his paw sometimes? They're the little things that we'll pick up on. I saw a dog the other day and I was like, my God, you said you've just walked out for two hours and it's got, you know, it's got balding feet where it's, where it's knuckling. Um, we'll notice that. But actually, if you started to say someday, you know, they've come in for a snotty nose or an itchy ear and then you start going, do you think his spine's ruined? Which is kind of how we are sometimes. You know, you need to just do that. So it's better that, you get to that question in a couple of months' time, then you kind of frighten them and never see them again. But it's 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 a horrible state of affairs. It's the entire animal. And yet the difficult thing is, yeah, their brain's not affected. And I absolutely agree with Lacey. Oh my God, I love a stubborn standoff with a five kilo peak in at ease. You know, that just made my day. Like just the hilarity of the personality. I've had three. I would have another one now, uh, except I need a bit of a break from the high maintenance lifestyle. And I think I commented in... The, that in the thing and that's something I said Lacey that when I 
whenever anyone would say to me, and I would have my peaks in a, in a buggy so that we could go further and they got out and got mental stimulus, people would, oh, aren't they cute? And if if the, the person maybe wasn't going to engage, my phrase always was, you know, they're really high maintenance. And it's a bit of a joke, but it's, no, they are. You know, everything about them physically and mentally is very, very high maintenance. Even the, the grooming bills for Pekingese would terrify most people. So I think, you know, if people are, Considering that, you might want to consider, well, you know, well, how much maintenance do you want to do with your pet? My pets had hydrotherapy, um, acupuncture. I was about to say aromatherapy. I did that at home. I just didn't go to the vets for it. You know, um, I did canine massage with them. We had ramps everywhere and steps everywhere. And there was a dog buggy and there was the bag that came out with the buggy. You know, it was like it was like I had a toddler. And if, you know, that's, a, I think, a way to engage with people on, on a slightly fun level, but also genuinely, this is what this animal will need to have a comfortable life. Okay, thank you, Jane. So sorry, but I think we've run out of time. Oh, no. <laughs> so sorry. Well, quickly, quickly, we can slot one in, I guess, for all of you. Our final question, 30 seconds each. Do you agree with the breeding of brachycephalic animals? Jane? Can I just say no for 30 seconds and then you yeah, can move on? That'll do. Lacey? I don't agree we should make it um, publicly you know, a positive thing. I do agree that for the breeds to improve, unfortunately, that is only going to happen with generations bred better. So, yes, in a more controlled and helped way. And last word up for you, Polly. Can I say I agree with Lacey? <laughs> <laughs> we all do. But, um... I'm just such a hard line. No sex for dogs. No <laughs> Um, well, I mean, guys, can I just thank you? That was an amazing panel. It's just, yeah, really, really good stuff. I'm sure you'd agree, Rachel. Yeah, there's just so much to consider with these breeds, isn't there? So much. Um, that's all, folks, pretty much. And then to remind you all, we will be back um, where our theme will be uh, another big one the future of veterinary nursing. That's on the 28th of October, 7 pm. So put that in your diaries. It just remains for me to thank our absolutely amazing panel. Polly, Jane and Lacey. I mean, that was terrific tonight. Um, and thank you all for coming um, and see you next time. Thank you all for coming. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, everyone.